0: What I want to do in this uh, talk is to work our way through uh, chapters 1 uh, to 3. I want to uh, do it not so much as a sermon on these three chapters, although largely it's sort of uh, expounding bits of it, but the point of, the point of doing it is to help us see uh, some, some significant themes that, uh, and purposes in a sense that Moses... Uh, draws out in these chapters that uh, help us understand, in fact, what this whole book uh, is aiming towards. In verses 6 to 8 of chapter 1, Moses looks to the task ahead. So this is where his sermon begins, and it begins with historical review uh, from the past. Remember that in the historical review in this section and a bit later in the book as well, Uh, many of the people to whom he speaks have been there. They've been part of that history. Admittedly, some were children when these things happened, but when he speaks about the very recent history, they've all been there. So keep in mind, history is not told for history's sake. The history begins not with the Exodus, which may be a natural place to start. After all, it's a demonstration of God's power, and the land lies ahead and the necessity for God's power to conquer the land uh, is there, but it actually begins with leaving Mount Sinai. So, God spoke to us at Horeb. Horeb is simply another name for Sinai. You have stayed long enough at this mountain. So, this is taking us back to Numbers chapter 10. Israel had been at Mount Sinai from Exodus 18 all the way through to Numbers 10. So now we're, we're at that point. And uh, so resume your uh, journey and uh, go, uh, sorry, I need to change glasses to read it, uh, into the hill country of the Amorites, as well as into the neighbouring regions the Arava, the hill country, Shephelah, Negev Seacoast, land of the Canaanites, Lebanon, as far as the great river Euphrates. See, I've given, uh, I've set the land before you. Go in and take possession of the land that I swore to your ancestors, to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, to give to them and to their descendants after them. Now, that's the beginning of the historical review. Why does Moses begin then? The theme that's dominant in this book and in his mind is land. And from the time of leaving Mount Sinai, land sort of looms. Uh, in some ways, it's helpful to think I, that all through the, the Scriptures, the Old Testament especially, uh, one or more of the promises to Abraham drive the story. Uh, if you like, there were four promises to Abraham, the quad promise or the promise package as, as it's been described, uh, descendants, uh, land, uh, greatness or blessing, and the fourth one is blessing to the world. And probably the dominant theme up to uh, beginning of Exodus, early Exodus, is descendants. But once that's in a sense more or less secure by the time Moses comes on the scene, then land begins to come, become the dominant theme. Now, now, there's an interweaving of all these themes. It's always helpful in reading Old Testament narrative to ask which of the promises to Abraham is, in a sense, on top here. That that actually provides us a helpful uh, uh, counter for uh, not getting lost in narrative and interpreting it in moralistic ways, etc. Which Which promise to Abraham is dominant here? Land is the one. And that, I think, is why Moses starts his historical review at this point because leaving Sinai or Horeb is land-focused. They're heading towards the promised land. The land is described... Now, let's, let's see how well this, this thing works. Um, if I draw my map... Oh. oh, I see. Gosh, I have to be a bit smaller here. Um, that's the land of Israel... Hopefully you remember that from the board over here. Maybe the board's easier. I don't know. You tell me. And, um, and what's described in verse 7 is the land in... Um, goodness, we'll soon be able to see somebody's backyard in Jerusalem. <laughs> um, this is like Google Maps, isn't it? G- Giggle Maps, we might call it. Um, uh, the land is described in verse 7. And uh, in different ge- geological, geographical sort of ways, <coughs> the hill country of the Amorites is the general expression for the whole thing. The Amorites being more or less equivalent to Canaanites is a generic term, uh, if you like. And um, <coughs> and then comes a mention of what's called the Arava. The Arava is the the uh, the land or the valley really around the Jordan River and the the Dead Sea. Uh, The low valley is the Aravar. And we're thinking roughly north-south bits of land. The next thing that comes is the hill country. And that's really a north-south strip uh, like this. It actually veers off in the end, out into the Mediterranean. Jerusalem is sort of there. Bethlehem is just below it. And uh, this is very high country, actually. Um, What is it? 2,500 feet above sea level. So in 40 kilometres from the Dead Sea, 400 metres below sea level, 400 feet, no, 1,200 feet below, 2,500 feet above. Quite a steep climb uh, to get there. That's the hill country. Uh, after that comes the Shephelah, which are sort of low-lying hills. Then comes the flat coastal plain that's mentioned and the seacoast. Uh, the Negev is uh, down below the desert there. Now, I just sort of mentioned that by way of sort of orientation to the land. And as you read through the history, uh, Israel remains fairly secure most of its history in this hill country, Jerusalem, Bethlehem. The Philistines have most of this sort of land. And it's in here that all the battles... Oh, it's amazing, isn't it? Gosh, the technology. Um, I've never seen one of these things before. I'm sort of coveting it, really. Uh, that's where all the battles are fought. And when Israel is weak, the Philistines are moving up and when Israel is strong, they're they're moving down. In one sense, that's less important than the description of the land in the next verse. Uh, That gives you, in a sense, the boundaries and the geography of the land. It should actually go way up north to the Euphrates, way beyond this bit of paper. Uh, But what's most important about the land is how it's described in verse 8, which is a theological description of the land. It's the land that God swore to give to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob uh, and to their descendants. The significance of that is that this is not simply a human battle that's uh, looming to conquer the land. God swore, promised to give and those... Words he swore to give, he promised, he promised on oath to give, the the land that God is giving you. As I said, variations on that theme come many times in Deuteronomy. It's motivational language actually to remind Israel that the land ahead of them, yes, dangerous at one level, but God has promised, sworn on oath to give. The promise was made first in Genesis 12, verse 7, to Abraham, after Abraham actually got to the land, God then said, "This is the land I'm going to give you." It was reiterated in chapter 15 of Genesis, in 17 and 22, and then to Jacob, and then, uh, then to Isaac, and then to Jacob. Thereafter, just in general, to the descendants of Jacob, uh, called Israel. So that that's an important thing to grasp. Now, the dilemma we know is that Israel has failed a generation before to conquer the land. Keep that in mind as we think about what Moses next says. At that time, I said to you, this is verse 9, I'm unable by myself to bear you. The Lord your God has multiplied you so that today you are as numerous as the stars of heaven. May the Lord, the God of your ancestors, increase you a thousand times more and bless you as he's promised you. Now, where does that language come from in verse 10? made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. I heard somebody whisper, Genesis chapter 15. Context, Abram doubting the promise of God. God take him out to the night sky, look up in the sky, as numerous as the stars are, so you shall your descendants be. Moses is saying that's happened. We are now as numerous as the stars in the sky. I once had a student who thought literally it would be the exact number of stars in the sky. Uh, I found it a bit hard to sort of persuade otherwise. I I personally just think it's a metaphorical expression. But anyway, regardless, um, it's happened. Now, why does Moses mention that here apart from the fact that he needs helpers to lead the nation? That's like the evidence for the number. The point here seems to be that Part of the promise package to Abraham has been fulfilled, that is descendants. Part of the promise package to Abraham has not yet been fulfilled, that in particular at this time is land. Israel is, we know, afraid of going into the land, that will become explicit in a few verses time and we know that from the history in Numbers 13, 14. What's going on here is that Moses is encouraging Israel to trust God's promise. And he's doing that at this point by saying part of the promise has already been kept. In fact, in Genesis 15, it's very interesting that there are two sections to that chapter. One is a reiteration of the promise of descendants in verses 1 to 6. And then secondly, in verses 7 to 18 of Genesis 15, a reiteration of the promise of land. Often when the Bible alludes to or quotes an earlier verse, it assumes or implies the whole context. Like if I was to say to you, the Lord's my shepherd, you would be immediately, I think, most of you thinking, oh yes, green valleys and Psalm 23, the whole psalm. You don't have to quote the whole psalm to imply the whole psalm. So when that verse is quoted you are as numerous as the stars in the sky. It seems to me that I I think Moses is probably implying here that whole chapter, the doubt of Abraham being answered by God's promise reiterated and the land, which is the second part of the chapter. So what's going on here is an encouragement. God has kept part of that promise. Yes, it's 600 years later, 2000 to 1400 BC, give or take a few decades. And the land promise you can k- still trust. God will keep that promise. It's not yet kept, but it will be kept. It's an encouragement here uh, to Israel. Now, I need to turn this back over so I can remember what's next. Now, uh, and, and so it's a promise keeping God, is how I've described it in, in point number three on the handout. That's the point, the purpose. This is God directed uh, sermon. And what's going on here is in chapters one to three, I think is that Moses is basically preaching, expounding different passages like Exodus, Genesis 15 and in particular some passages in Numbers about the spies. And, uh, and he's doing that to motivate this generation, the next generation, to do what their parents did not do and that is to conquer the land. Now if we move then on to verse 19 of uh, Deuteronomy 1, uh, the verses up to that, are about appointing other leaders. It's not land-focused, but it seems to be evidence, uh, if you like, for the the, the the numerousness of Israel at that point. Now we come in verse 19. Uh, then, just as the Lord our God had ordered us, we set out from Horeb. That takes us back to verse 6, when God said, now's the time you've been here long enough, time to move. So they left in verse 19. Let me summarise the narrative of the rest of chapter 1. They left Horeb, they came to Kadesh Barnea, um, maybe it's best to go back to here, on the border of the land. They said, we need to have some spies to go into the land, we're a bit afraid here. So they send spies into the land, they come back, they give a report. They say, in Deuteronomy 125, it is a good land that the Lord our God is giving us. They mention that giving of the land, the people are afraid of the enemies. The enemies in the land they say in verse 28 are giants like the Anakim, and they are fortified. They've got walls around their cities and so on. We're a bit afraid. What happens? They decide not to go in. God rebukes them then they say, oh, well, if God rebukes us, we better go in. God says, well, if you go in, I'm not with you this time. They go in, they get beaten, they come back out, and then they are condemned to 40 years in the wilderness. Now, that's the narrative. Many of you would know that. I'm just sort of very briefly summarising it. What's going on here? Why is Moses reminding them of this? The spies' incident was 38 years before. Some of them were alive then, and uh, many of them were not. Is it simply to tell them what happened? I don't think so. History is never told, in the Bible at least, simply for telling us the facts. History is always told selectively and for a more practical, or yeah, practical in a broad sense, uh, purpose for the current reader here, or listener, whoever. Why is Moses recounting this sort of history here for the people? He does it in a particular way to encourage them uh, for the future. Let me uh, uh, give an illustration. What, does it ne- what do you need in order to trust somebody? Imagine somebody just you've never met, knocks at your door and says, can you lend me $100,000? Oh, you look a trustworthy person. Here it is, bring them back. You're not going to do that, are you? You might lend something like that to a person whom you know, but not everybody you know would you lend. What sort of person? What, what's required for you to trust somebody when they say, you know, I'll pay you back or I'll do this or that or the other? I think there are two general things. Uh, and, and, and this is within the context usually of a, of a known relationship. One of those things is that the person's reliable. They're trustworthy person that's obviously going to be in the pattern of a relationship that's already formed. There are friends of mine who I, I, I may not trust simply because though they're friends of mine, they're not necessarily reliable. Other friends are reliable, so I will trust what they say. You know, if somebody says, I'll see you tomorrow at 10am sharp, there are various friends of mine who I think, yes, I better be there right before 10 and others who I think, oh, I could probably be there at 10 past um, because of re- reliability differences. But there's also another thing. If I was to say to you that um, something and you think, oh, he's a reliable person, I trust him. But what if I said to you, I'm going to promise you perfect health for the rest of your life? You'd laugh at me. But why? Not because I'm unreliable. I think I'm fairly reliable. But you'd laugh at me because I can't do that. It's outside my power. See, there are two general categories that both need to be in play to trust somebody, I think. One is that they're reliable and one is that they're able. See, I could say I'll I'll be here after lunch at one o'clock sharp or whatever time it's meant to be and we'll start, you you trust me, perfect health, you won't. Reliability and ability. What's going on in this history narrative, uh, in this sermon of Moses in chapters one to three, is to demonstrate to ancient Israel, the second generation, in effect, God is both reliable and able. The reliability we've already seen illustrated in that allusion back to Genesis 15. God is reliable, he's kept the promise of descendants and you can can trust him to keep the promise of land. Okay. The reliability and the ability are the sort of two themes that are running through them. Now let's analyse this this narrative briefly in, of the second part of Deuteronomy 1 verses 19 to 46. One of the things about narrative that's uh, important is uh, is to look at speeches. Uh, Bible narrative is unlike modern novels; it's very uh, concise and succinct. And uh, in particular, words that people say are focal points in narrative. Somebody says, I think, that a half the narrative of the Bible is dialogue or, or speeches that people say. A- and that's partly because uh, it slows the narrative down and so it focuses on words that people say and also because they, the, the words, the speeches, provide often the clue to interpreting the narrative. Now, in this uh, narrative, let's see if I, if I put that one there. Let's uh, let's try. I probably need to use a big pen. We have a speech by Moses. Then we have a speech by Israel. Then we have a speech by the spies. Then back to Israel, and then back to Moses. Uh, Verse uh, um, roughly verses uh, nine. uh, Moses is uh, verse twenty onwards. Uh, Israel is uh, 22 onwards, the spies are 25, Israel's 27, 28, and then Moses speaks again in verse 29 onwards. Now, uh, the pattern, I think, is probably deliberate. Uh, Hebrew uh, writing often has this sort of pattern where where the outer edges, there's sort of this mirror image, if you like. They call it a chiasm, C-H-I-A-S-M, from a Greek letter chi because it sort of looks in that pattern. It's quite common in Hebrew writing, even though it's foreign for us as English, and we, it's, you know, it's hard, we, we think this is a strange pattern in a way. What it tends to do is focus on the centre point, and, uh, and the beginning and the ends are often important. What this pattern does is isolate Israel's words. One of the intriguing things here is what the spies say. Verse 25, it is a good land... Uh, that the Lord, your God, our God, is giving us. What's intriguing about that? Moses is preaching out of Numbers thirteen fourteen. He quotes the spies accurately, but not fully. See what Israel says in response in verse 27. Um, our kindred have made our hearts melt by reporting that the people are stronger and taller than we. If you don't know the book of Numbers, you would read this and think, what? The spies didn't say anything about that. Now, it's clear Moses has abbreviated the spies' speech to the positive only. He's done that, I think, to highlight the fear of Israel in response. He's assuming people know Numbers. After all, verse 27 assumes that we know it. In, in later in the chapter it mentions Caleb and it assumes that we know the story. So, Moses is not trying to deceive by misquoting but rather he's emphasising different things and what he's emphasising here is the sin of Israel, their fear of the land. The really important thing of the spies, which is true, is that it is a good land that the Lord our God is giving us. It's both good and being given, and yet the people uh, were afraid. So that's, uh, and their fear then is is because of fortifications and giants, or anachim as they're called in verse 28. And what that's implying to us, to the next generation is, this is a groundless fear. If God is giving this land, this is a groundless fear. Moses' words in both his two speeches are positive words. He says, see, the Lord your God has given the land, go and take possession. Reiterates the same sort of thing, have no dread of them later. So, it's the, the structure of the speeches is isolating the fear of Israel and showing how groundless it is because God is giving the land and, therefore that, and that's who we should be trusting. And if we trust him, then it doesn't matter what the enemy is like. Uh, it's a groundless fear. So that's what's going on in the uh, speeches here and Israel's fear as they express it in verses 27 and 28. What is their sin? In verse 26, it's described as you were unwilling and rebelling. In verse 32, you did not trust. Same sin is being described in two different ways. Now, I think theologically, this is an important point to grasp. What is sin? We often describe it in terms of action but actually that's a a shallow thing. There is action, rebellion in this case. There's also unbelief. What's the sin of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden? We might say it's the action of eating a fruit. At the same time, we could rightly say it's not believing God's word but rather believing the serpent's word. You see, sin... It's a bit like a a coin in a way. On one side, we could say that's rebellion. On the other side, it's lack of faith. Oops, throwing my money away. And, um, And they're true. You see, disobedience is related to unbelief. Faith is related to obedience. They actually mesh together. What's the purpose of the gospel? As Paul describes it in Romans 1 verse 5, The goal of the gospel is the obedience of faith. I don't think it's two things. I think Paul, right, he doesn't say obedience and faith as though you get one and then maybe the other, but they relate together. The obedience of faith uh, is what God requires. That is, as we place our trust in God, it will flow out into obedience. They are inextricably entwined together. and It's the same in the Old Testament what God's law wants is not simple outward obedience, we'll see this in the afternoon, uh, but it's a faith and obedience that are relating together and the faith that is producing greater fruit of obedience. So keep that in mind as you read Old Testament laws and in your teaching in your small groups and so on, that behind those laws and actions, Deuteronomy expects faith as well. Don't don't have a low view of Old Testament law that says it's just about do this and do that and do that. When we get to the gospel, it's about faith. Uh, That's a wrong dichotomy, Uh, disjunction between the Testaments, it seems to me. Uh, Notice how he says in verse 26, this is the point I made before, you were unwilling to go up. Well, that's uh, not really technically true there may just have been a handful of people who were more or less at the age of moral discernment at this time that was still alive, but probably not. Um, you could say, it was our parents who were unwilling, you see. You could deny responsibility. But by saying you, it's, I think, implying you're no better than your parents. Don't rely on yourself. Don't be proud or self-righteous. There are actually themes of warnings that come up later on, especially in chapters 7, 8 and 9 of Deuteronomy. Uh, warnings about pride and self-righteousness and, um, and and that's something we're all prone to and that, that I think is what Moses by saying you, you, you is trying to sort of demolish that that inherent pride thing well we're better than our parents, we will succeed uh, don't rely on yourself notice too the grumbling words in verse 27 Israel in unbelief and rebellion grumbled saying, it is because the Lord hates us. That's an astonishingly terrible thing to say, isn't it? He hates us because we know that it's a, it's a deep love of God that has protected them and redeemed them and brought them into the, out th- from uh, slavery and so on. How can a people say God hates us? But you see, unbelief distorts things so much that we attribute back to God uh, often the opposite of his good attributes or good purposes or good intentions we ought to be very careful about grumbling to God the Psalms and Job give us dimensions of being able to complain and grumble but they do it within faith and not the attribution in the end of of completely wrong motives of God Uh, so we need to be careful Grumbling is often a sign of unbelief and in pastoral ministry I've known that when people complain about God, I think that's a serious thing. That God is doing this or that or complaining about him it can actually be a, a serious thing in our faith. Something that's often just ignored and overlooked. Uh, notice too the emphasis on see. Uh, Moses says "See" in verse... Uh, um, um, 21 I think Sorry, Uh, see the Lord has given the land Um, the spies see and report so at the end of verse 28 we actually saw the offspring of the Anakim and uh, Moses again um, in verse 30 says the Lord your God who goes before you is the one who will fight for you just as he did in Egypt before your very eyes uh, there's this emphasis on seeing. Notice again, it's your very eyes, but actually some of you were not even born then. So this you works in two ways, at a sort of negative level, uh, but also at a positive level of immediacy. Um, I think that the the, the the seeing theme here, and it's picked up in a later part of Deuteronomy we'll probably touch on this afternoon if we get time, uh, it recognises two dimensions of seeing in a way. Do you see with faith or not? You see, if, if without faith you just see giants or with faith do you actually see God above the giants, if, if I can put it like that. Uh, faith actually brings us the right perspective, the right seeing, uh, so to speak. Uh, there's an element of that in the book of Revelation, I think where John is ushered into to heaven with a vision that he records for his contemporaries and for us. And in a sense, it gives the right reality. That is, appearances on earth look as though the Roman emperor and Domitian and the persecution of the church, that's all powerful. And that the, and the, and the Christ in the end is a failure. And uh, that's, that's the reality of those churches that John writes to in Revelation, or Christ writes to in Revelation. But the vision of heaven is saying, see, in effect, the true perspective. And, and that's sort of the seeing, the two options, I think, that are going on in, in Deuteronomy as, uh, as well. Verses 34, in a sense, then gives God's response to the failure to conquer the land at the spies. And uh, in a nutshell, the, the point I want to draw out of this is that the promise still stands. The generation who was morally culpable, that is, those 20 and older at the time of the spies, they will die off in the wilderness. That's their punishment. It could have been that God said, okay, land is gone. I'll give it to somebody else. But he doesn't do that. The significance of this point, I guess, is to say to this second generation, the land promise is still on offer. The land promise didn't end with the sin of your parents. That's a very big theological point and pastoral point. It's a big theological point. Paul makes the same point in Romans 2 and 3, for example. Our faithlessness does not nullify the faithfulness of God. And yes, there is in, in part punishment and that generation did not enter the land as Moses himself will not enter. But God's promise is not thwarted or stopped by human sinfulness. Now, it's a big theological point, because I've often heard people say things like, um, unless you do this, unless you obey, God cannot do that or work through you or something like that. That's terrible, actually. God is God. He can do whatever he likes. But pastorally encouraging to us is that our sin doesn't stop God's promises. That's a great encouragement to us because we do fail. And sometimes we can feel guilty thinking, oh, you know, somehow I'm getting in the way of God fulfilling his good purposes because of my weakness or failure. In the big picture, no. The point here for ancient Israel's second generation, so to speak, is to say to them, don't think that the land promise stopped when your parents failed. The promise still stands. God is still faithful. God is still reliable, even though 38 years before this, you failed to enter the land. That's the point, I think, of verse 34 to 40, in effect. That's a great big theological point. God is God, absolutely faithful, a faithfulness that endures despite the faithlessness of his people. But their sin is persistent because in the last paragraph of the chapter, they say, oh, oh, we've done the wrong thing. We better go into the land. God warns them not to, I'm not going with you. What it's teaching, though, is that if God is with you, you can be guaranteed victory. If God is not with you, you're certain to lose almost. And they do, and they get beaten back out of the land and condemned to their wilderness period uh, of nearly 40 years. Now, I've just tried to pick a few key points out of that. We haven't got time to go through every word and every verse and so on, Uh, but I'm trying to do it, this section, because uh, this helps us see what is the purpose of this book. The purpose of this book is to instill in this generation faithful obedience to God which, foremostly, will be manifest in conquering the land. That's the big task ahead of them. That's a bigger purpose in the end, of course, because God is interested in them being in the land and under his rule and, and, and receiving his blessings because of their obedient faith and so on. But the initial task is to conquer the land. This book is a motivation to do that, to encourage them to trust God and to do the task their parents failed to do. Notice how God-centred it is. Imagine if you were a football coach, or whatever other sporting coach, and, uh, and you're coming up to uh, a big match. And the opposition, you know, let's say it's basketball, the opposition are all eight feet high, giants. You've never beaten them. In fact, you've got a dismal failure a few years before. And, uh, and what's the football coach going to say? In our day and age, they're going to say, you can do it. You've got enough ability. Just think positively enough. That's what they all go on about all the time. That, uh, nonsense and hot air, the football coaches. <laughs> the strange thing is they get paid millions to do it. Uh, but isn't it interesting? And, and they might say, remember you know, back in 1843 when we beat them. <laughs> They'll think about victories, won't they? But what goes on here is actually failure. Striking that when Moses wants to instill faithful obedience to do a big task ahead of them, he actually highlights their their failure in the past. Because in highlighting their failure, the strength of God is clearer in a way. Same sort of argument you find, for example, in 2 Corinthians and, and so on. That God's strength is made clearer in our weakness. Notice how the enemy is not uh, under-described here. You know, you can imagine a football coach saying, you know, they're tall, yeah, but they're not that tall. You know, they're not really that tall. You know, you sort of play them down somehow. That never happens here. The enemy are giants and their cities are fortified. In fact, the Bible never sort of lowers the description of an enemy. Satan is powerful in the New Testament. That's not to make us afraid, but rather to recognise that God is more powerful. You see, there's a sense in which if we say the Amorites or Canaanites in the land, they're not really giants, they're not really fortified, they're actually pretty weak and miserable lot, you've got more people than they've got, they're not much of an enemy. What's the implication of that? Well, the danger is that one you can do it, you've got enough strength yourself. The other danger is to say, well, it, it weakens the argument that God is powerful. Because if the enemy's small and weak, well, you don't actually need much power to defeat them. So Deuteronomy is actually very realistic about Israel's failure and the strength of the enemy. And all of that contributes to a more glorious picture, a real picture of the strength and power of God himself. Well, how does this story continue? What follows is a brief rehearsal of some later chapters of Numbers after the 38 years in the wilderness. The people being addressed would all have been alive there pretty much, apart from the little babies who doesn't really matter anyway. Um, Moses, again, is not giving history for history's sake. They know all this, but he's giving it for motivational sake, preaching, so what, what is the, uh, the narrative in, in, in essence? The first part of it, chapter 2, 1 to 23, are three countries, Edom, Moab and Ammon. And uh, I'll go back to the board, I think is perhaps a bit easier. Um, these countries, uh, basically in, in broad terms, Eden is here south of the Dead Sea. Uh, Moab is here. That's actually where they are now. And Ammon is sort of here. The borders were sort of key rivers but but that's roughly speaking where they are and in Numbers uh, what is it, 33 or thereabouts, we're told that they are to go through those three nations without fighting them, not to conquer their land, not to fight them. In part, their kinship, Edom you may know, descends from Esau, the twin brother of Jacob and Moab and Ammon uh, come from Lot, the nephew of Abraham. That's not particularly the reason why they're not to defeat them, it's part of the reason I guess but it's not part of the promised land. And uh, so Numbers recounts all that. Why does Moses do it again here? I think he does so for the issues of faithfulness and power that I've talked about before. In chapter 2, 1 to 23, dealing with those three nations that they don't fight, each of those three, we're told, has been given land by God in effect, and the term that's used is as a possession. It's actually an unusual word, although the word possess or possession is very common, and it's a related word, but the actual word as a possession is fairly rare in the Old Testament. But it's used four times in this chapter. Uh, So if I remember rightly, it's verse 5 is the first time that that idea or word is used, uh, speaking about Edom which is Mount Seir, another way of calling it, or Esau, the person from whom Edom is descended. Um, I will not give you any of their land since I've given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession. Verse 5. Verse 9 says the same sort of thing about uh, Moab at the end of that verse, since I've given Ar, that is the capital area of it, as a possession. And the same sort of thing happens again uh, in verse 19 for the Ammonites. I will not give the land of the Ammonites to you as a possession. In verse 12, it it looks past tense, uh, but it speaks of Israel. Um, At the end of that verse, as Israel has done in the land that the Lord gave them as a possession. Some say it might be an added verse a bit later. I'm not sure that that would uh, be the case. Uh, And tenses are often a bit fluid. So don't worry too much about being past tense. What's, What's going on here? What's the point of this? It's saying in effect, God has given three other nations their land as a possession and what he will do for Israel is to give them their land as a possession. So that's analogous with three past events and Israel's future. Therefore, again, there's this encouragement that that God, if he's done it for those three and you are the chosen nation, well, how much more you can trust him to do it. But now we're dealing with the issue of God's power to do it. In this chapter, there are two little bracketed sections. It depends on your translation, but they're often bracketed from verse 10 onwards and verse 20 onwards. And it gives us uh, bits that most commentators almost gloss over because the people that are mentioned are, are hardly ever known outside these verses. Uh, for example, in verse 10, speaking of the land that uh, Moab will get, um, uh, oh, my page flew over in the breeze. That's why I can't see it. Uh, the Emim, a large and numerous people as tall as the Anakim had formerly inhabited it. Like the Anakim, they're usually reckoned as Rephaim, though the Moabites called them emim Moreover, the Horim had formerly inhabited Seir. Uh, goodness, that sounds a bit boring. Let's skip over that. But actually, it's making a very important point. Who was in the land before the Moabites or the Emim? Well, who were they? Well, it doesn't really matter who all these emim were, but see how they're described. In verse 10, a large and numerous people as tall as the Anakim. Where have we heard the Anakim before? Back in chapter 1, verse 28, the fear of Israel. What's happened to the Amin? They were dispossessed. By whom? By God for another nation. Do you see what's being said here? And the same thing happens in verse 20 as well. For Moab and Ammon in particular, implicitly probably for Edom, but explicitly for Moab and Ammon, the people who were in their land before were fortified and giants like the Anakim. Where are they? Gone. Who did it? God. God is powerful to defeat the giants. God is powerful to defeat other nations. That's the point. That's why Moses has recounted this history. And if God could do it for them... You can trust that he can do it for you. And the as a possession ties those two things together in this chapter. He's done it for Edom, Moab and Ammon. He can do it for you. The enemy for them, the the people living in the land for them, were not weak and puny. They were strong. Giants like the Anakim, the very people you're afraid of in your land, God's already defeated them in the past. That's what the point of verse... 10 onwards and verse 20 onwards is in this chapter. As a possession, he's defeated other giants. We move on. The last part of chapter uh, 2 from verse 23 or 24 onwards uh, through to chapter 3, verse 11. We now deal with two other nations. uh, The nation of Sion, uh, king of Heshbon, that's uh, in this area here, Gilead, and Og, uh, king of Bashan, Is sort of in the Golan Heights sort of area above the Sea of Galilee. What's happened to them? Israel fights them and defeats them. Uh, You can read about that in Numbers. Moses is not saying something new here. Why does he do it? He does it to make exactly the same point in effect. You've already defeated two nations. They were not weak. They had fortified cities. Both of them get descriptions in those verses. We haven't got time to look up all the verses now, but... Both of them have descriptions in those verses that the cities were fortified. No citadel was too high for us in chapter 3. Uh, they, were, they were strong enemies and indeed there were implications of giants. Chapter 3 verse 11 is a, an odd little verse. It tells us that King Og of Bashan, the nation at the top that was conquered, he had a bed that was 13 uh, cubits no, not 13 cubits. That's 13 feet, isn't it? Um, uh, how many cubits was it? Nine cubits long, four cubits wide. Nine a cubit is roughly elbow to tip of finger, 18 inches more or less. So nine cubits is 13 and a half feet. Now, I doubt that you've got a bed that big. You may not have a room that long. Uh, I don't mind. I wouldn't mind a bed that long actually. The bed I've got in Malaysia is a little bit small, but. Um, and a bed that's four cubits wide, you know, six feet wide. Why? He's a giant, that's why. Where is he now? Dead. Why? God gave the victory. For both Sion and Og, the descriptions make it clear that God is the one who gave the victory. See, God has defeated fortified cities already for Israel, and he's defeated giants like Og. And in fact, if you, if you doubt it, you can go to Rabbah of the Ammonites today, verse 11 says, and see the bed. Well, I've actually been, uh, Rabbah of the Ammonites is modern day Amman, the capital of Jordan. I've been there three times, actually. I can't find the bed, it's gone. <laughs> uh, but I'm sure the dog is dead. So um, the point is, uh, God is powerful. See how those themes are driving the narrative. Moses is preaching from Genesis 15, from uh, Numbers uh, 13, 14, uh, Numbers 33, 34, uh, preaching for the new generation so that they may conquer the land. And he's addressing their fears. And he's addressing them at the level of God's faithfulness and God's ability to keep the promises. Now, I've gone through this section uh, partly to give you know, to, to deal with one section, not just to deal with themes jumping everywhere, but partly also to, to, because this is foundational for fulfilling the thrust of the book. The whole book is there to direct people's attention to a great, powerful, gracious and glorious God whom you can trust absolutely, regardless of the enemy, the difficulty, the obstacles that lie ahead. And uh, in particular here, with the focus of conquering the land. And just to underscore the certainty and the victory, then chapter 3, in the last part of chapter 3, tells them that they've actually got two and a half tribes already possessing land. For the tribes of uh, Gad and uh, Reuben and half of Manasseh occupy the land of Og and Sin on this side of the Jordan. There's debate about is this promised land or is it like a bonus? And and the the arguments go both ways. I I think it's a bit of a bonus in a way because the the language across the Jordan to the land of promise is so strong and this is on beyond the Jordan side. I think it's a bit of bonus but having said that uh, the way they defeat shows that it's regarded as promised land or real possession, not just an add-on for them. So to conclude Moses is preaching. It is not history for history's sake. Some of that history they actually experience themselves the Edom, Moab, Ammon, Sin, and Og sections. But Moses is preaching history, drawing out emphases. He's actually preaching the Bible, I think. I think actually what we see here is like an expository sermon on bits of Numbers uh, and uh, Genesis. And he's expounding it for their particular need as they face the imminent death of Moses and the uh, conquest of the land ahead. Yes, they are giants. Yes, the cities are fortified. Yes, it's a daunting task. But the point is that God is faithful. God is powerful. And if you trust him, you will obey him. You cannot say, yes, I'm going to trust God and then refuse to get your foot wet in the Jordan River. If you trust him, then you'll cross the river and conquer the land. Notice how clearly Deuteronomy uh, draws us to God by pulling out the carpet under the feet of Israel. You rebelled, you were unbelieving. Uh, No room for pride in yourself. Uh, No diminishing of the enemy, no lifting up of the people, but rather all pointing to the faithfulness and the power of Almighty God. Let me stop there and uh, just see if there's some questions before we break for lunch. I assume lunch is on the way, it's coming, Andrew went to get it so um, I've been waiting for him to walk in with lunch and think I've got to stop right now, you know, before it gets cold, but anyway, any questions? Uh, Yes, Yes, in chapter, uh well, it's a couple of times. Uh, is it chapter 1 or 3 you're looking at? Looking at... It doesn't matter, really. Chapter 3? Um, <laughs> well, it's it, chapter three twenty three, but also it's in chapter uh, 1, uh, 37? That's right, that's right. Yeah. yeah. That's right. So yes, um, I think Moses here, I think, is identifying with the people and saying, you know, even I'm not going to enter the land. Um, it, it, there are different ways people read this. When it says because of you, it, it sounds a bit like Moses is saying it's all your fault, not mine. Although later on in chapter 32, I think it is. Uh, it's clear that you know, Moses is himself culpable. Uh, I think he is provoked by the people when he strikes the rock in anger, but that doesn't excuse him striking the rock in anger. Uh, so the, because of you, I would say, and some, some try to even read it vicariously as though he's suffering for them, which I don't think is, is right at all. Um, I think he is provoked by them, uh, but as I say, that doesn't excuse his, his anger <coughs> and a response in, I think it's Numbers 20, when he strikes the rock. Um, I think what he's saying here is that, um, uh, yes, I'm, I'm like your parents in a way. I also will not enter the promised land. I'm, I'm guilty in a sense. Um, the death of Moses does hang over this book, as it's mentioned here in verse one, chapter 1 and 3, and later in 4, and then later on again. So it actually provides another sort of negative cloud but also I think the other thing is the people will not be relying on Moses to conquer the land. So there's an element of that as well.